Welcome back to the Legal Weekly Wine. I am your host, Virginia Tarani of Tarani Law LLC, because you never need a lawyer tell you do. And um, this is brought to you by The Law Unscripted. We handle for the Legal Weekly Wine the hottest legal topics of the week. And this summer is truly hot. We have Supreme Court decisions because it's June coming out like crazy. And even today, Friday, we have got the last day, the last Friday of the month, we've still got Supreme Court decisions that have come down today. So we are going to hit the ones that have come down prior to today um, in our podcast today and then pick up next week where we come back for all of the ones that are decided, have been decided today on the, or brought down today. Um, published today is probably the best word on this Friday. So I have with me our illustrious um, co-host and guest again today, Dr. John Vile from Middle Tennessee State University. He's the Dean of the Honors College and a longstanding mm -hmm. professor of political science, as well as an expert on the constitution, the amending process and constitutional laws. So thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Oh, my goodness. It's been so good to have you on our summer session of the Legal Weekly Wine, especially to help break down the Supreme Court decisions that are coming <laughs> like hotcakes, it seems. There have been some doozies. <laughs> they, they have. They are definitely not any kind of cold cakes. They are truly hot cakes. Um, and I, I mean, I thought last summer was pretty monumental with the Roe versus Wade type of decision or decision, however you want to say it, the Dobbs decision about Roe versus Wade. But um, this summer has not disappointed in terms of surprises and interest. It was interesting. Yesterday, President Biden was asked, is this a rogue court? And he says, it's not a normal court. I don't think that's right. Uh, I mean, it's a little more consequential than some, but I think this time, almost every year, we are sometimes surprised, sometimes, sometimes pleased, sometimes disappointed. Yeah. Um, and I would say, you know, now there are some aspects of the court, particularly involving judicial ethics that I think need to be cleaned up this year. Right. But in terms of the decisions, um, the affirmative action case, for example, yesterday, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been saying for 20 years or better that he thinks the Constitution ought to be colorblind. Um, and so, yes, there were some, maybe including me, who thought, well, maybe the court will stick with sort of the existing ambiguity. Um, race can't be determinative. You can't use it. You can't have racial quotas. Right. But maybe in considering diversity, you can use it. And Pretty much, he seems to have closed the door on that. Um, and th and this is in, I, I mean, not like anybody doesn't know who's listening, but just so we make sure to, to do it. This is the um, the Harvard and North Carolina case. Right. Um, well, one's a state school and one, one is a private school. So it's Students for Fair Admissions um, versus President and Fellows of Harvard College. And this was based on the equal protection, like you're saying, of affirmative action, where we've had what we call affirmative action for how many decades? Mm, at least since what it was. I should have looked up the Bakke decision. I believe it was 78. I may be I, wrong. Yeah, I think it was late uh, 70s. I think 77 or 78. Yeah, some, somewhere uh, 
about the time that I was in <laughs> graduating from getting out of graduate school. Um, and again, you know, that, that that was an odd case in that the original had, one. Right. The the okay. original Bakke case and that you had a four, four and one decision where the one justice, his loan decision basically decided that case and cases for the next 40 years. And it was Justice Lewis Powell of, of Virginia. Uh, there were four justices who said you can use race to overcome race. Mm. You had four justices who said considerations of race are verboten. That's what equal protection is about. Uh, and Powell says, well, uh, you can use race in the limited situation involving college admission where you're doing it not just to enable members of that race, but to increase diversity of viewpoints, backgrounds, and the like. And that that single, I mean, he bridged the divide. Yeah. Uh, you can't use, no, he's opposed to quotas. Uh, yes, he favors some use of race, but not for anything. You know, he basically struck down, we're going to use race to provide black doctors and lawyers, or we're going to use it, et cetera, et cetera, to know you can use it for diversity in the classroom. And, you know, one of the fascinating things about yesterday's case is you had a number, you know, race is a very fluid concept, um, as just Chief Justice Roberts pointed out. Um, all Latino, you know, a Latino from or Latina, I, I don't know what's a proper word is, but one from Cuba may have very different uh, perceptions than someone who's from from Mexico or someone right. from South America. But that would deal with ethnicity, not necessarily race. Well, that but that's of it. well. I think or would it be? Already, I mean, what, what, the larger point I was going to make is that some of the students in this case are who, who were opposing affirmative action were Asian Americans who mm -hmm. said that it was actually working against them, and as Justice Roberts pointed out. Well, to say Asian American is sort of like to assume that everyone in California has the same views as somebody in Tennessee or New York mm. or Texas. Uh, it covers a wide variety. And I guess that's, you know, that the, the difficulty with racial classifications is they do they tend to rely on stereotypes. Uh, sure. And sometimes, you know, I, I suspect that it's something of a burden to believe that you are in a class or or have everybody else thinking you're in a class because of where you came from or who your ancestors were rather than on your merit. I, I think we mentioned right. before Justice Thomas, who was a recipient of, of affirmative action, apparently put a 15% off sticker on his Yale diploma because he said when people looked at him, uh, they, they weren't sure he really belonged there. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's yeah, that's really interesting. So so with it, are you. Are you surprised by the decision? You've no, been waiting I, for it for a while. Well, I, I have. And, you know, there's an, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, Justice O'Connor basically wrote a decision. I believe it was in the Michigan case, but it may have been in another 
in which he essentially said, there's a time limit on use of race. Um, and she would have, she projected that in 25 years, uh, we would no longer need racial considerations. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Chief Justice Roberts points out is there doesn't seem to be any termination. Uh, Harvard and, and UNC, apparently as well, you know, had no plans to say at the end of five more years, we won't need any race anymore. And he basically argued that the the standards for determining when to use race and why to use race are so varied that they're really not subject to judicial determination. Mm. Well, one of the things I think that's missing, you know, there were very strident views on on both sides yesterday. Yeah. Uh, the the exchange between Justices Clarence Thomas and uh, Latonja Brown Jackson were particularly notable. Right. But and before somebody, get, who was it that read their decision? Well, I think a number of the justices, I, I okay. think Sotomayor and, uh, well, I, I think Roberts, Thomas, Sotomayor, and Jackson all read something from the bench. I may be mistaken on that. Which is um, unusual. Well, it's not unprecedented for sure, but usually justices, you know, you, you get an announcement by the just or, or by the the lead writer, and that's about it. But in important cases, uh, it's another way to add a little bit of drama to be heard. But you know, one thing I I frankly think this case may be getting more attention than it deserves. And That shouldn't be coming from a constitutional law professor. But it's not as though, you know, as disappointed as some people are and thrilled as others are, neither side is arguing from racist assumptions. Mm. I mean, the the majority is saying we want a, you know, they're quoting Chief Justice, uh, not Chief Justice, Justice John Marshall Harlan I, who said that in the eye, in the eye of the law, you know, now I'm going to forget the quotation, but, you know, basically all, all are equal. The, the, right. Constitution is is colorblind, neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. That's the ideal that the that the six in the majority are saying. And those in the minority are not saying, you know, we we want to. <laughs> We want to reimpose segregation, you know, and go to Roberts's opinion. He says we were wrong in Plessy versus Ferguson. We, we were wrong yes. in Dred Scott. We were wrong in Plessy versus Ferguson. We we said that we're not going to use race. The dissenters are saying you have, you know, basically that Roberts has a somewhat naive view mm-hmm. that if everyone in society is still, or many of us are still seeing issues from the standpoint of race, then we may need to consider race to overcome it. But right. it's and, not- and I think that was um, the biggest issue was we're, we are being naive, is that we we still have so much to recover from that this will set us back. Right. Or at and least of course, that- progression forward for advancement of African-Americans. Right. But but again, minority is still less. To be clear, however, the court had already upheld 
uh, I believe it's a referendum in Michigan and perhaps in Texas as well, where the state decided that they, the state had already said you do not have to use racial considerations in university admission. Now, the, those, the response to that is that, well, states that discontinued this policy have found that their African-American minorities have, in fact, decreased. And to the extent that that's a bad thing, uh, doesn't provide the same kind of diversity, then, you know, then that's a concern. Roberts's response in part is, and, and I guess Thomas is, the, you know, if there's anybody on the court who epitomizes the view that you can't necessarily put people in a box in terms of their opinion on the basis of race, it's Justice Thomas. Uh, he confounds every stereotype as to African-Americans must be liberal Democrats. Mm. Uh, African-Americans must favor quotas. African-Americans must do this or that. Oh, and, you know, he's very independent in that respect. Now, you could say that his independence is he's following <laughs> an, an equally rigid sort of views on the other side. But right. he does show that just, you know, just because you have an African-American in the room doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a different opinion than if you had had a, an Asian-American or a, or a Latina or someone else. Now, where so so everyone understands, where did he fall in the affirmative action decision? I'm sorry, Justice Thomas. Thomas, Justice he, Thomas. Right. He 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 has a concurring opinion, I, I believe. Uh, and with the, with the concurring, he agrees with the overall right. decision of right. the majority. He, he opposes. He has from the beginning. He he believes that, as I understand it, that instead of helping him forward, it everybody who looked at him said, "Well, you really didn't deserve to be at Yale. You were there." Because, you know, you help, well, not meet a quota, but because right. of your race. And he says, you know, this is wrong. And, and to some degree, it, it's almost, it's not quite, but it's almost like the ancient division between W.E.B. Du Bois mm. and uh, Booker T. Washington. That's not quite the same. But Washington basically said, we don't need to worry about getting in elite colleges, we need to work our way up, prove ourselves, and in time, we'll be equal with others. And Du Bois said, I'm going for the top 10%. Uh, they're the people that are going to lift our race up. Mm. And so it's almost, you know, and again, perhaps because I'm at a public university where no considerations are given, to, is my understanding, to race in terms of admission. Uh, and we have, you know, a good 15, 20 percent of our, our, our population is African-American. We have other minorities here without using quotas. In, in, some, in some ways, this is a little like inside baseball, you know, and the, the court, the court is a, the, the one area where, you know, the court is more diverse than it's ever been in terms of race and gender. Right. It is more some, it's more similar than it's ever been in that, to my knowledge, not a single justice graduated from a place other than the Ivy League. And I'm, I'm sorry, oh. you know, William oh, and Mary, I don't know how, how you ended up I, not, I don't not know. making Harvard or Yale. 
Right. Uh, the two of us, both William and Mary graduates, you for undergrad, me for law school. We're, we're failing, Dad. I, I know we did. We didn't make that top elite. <laughs> we uh, didn't. <laughs> and by the way, you know, one of the, the other fascinating things about the current court, you know, for many years, there used to be a Jewish seat, used to be a Catholic seat. Uh, right. Some say there was sort of a Southern seat. And now there's only was the Jewish seat, right? Pardon? Jewish was the was Scalia, or no? No, it was, no, no, it was no, Gator no. Ben, Gator no first, first Jewish appointment was Justice Brandeis, and then you had a series: Brandeis, Frankfurter, uh, Goldberg, uh, Fortas. No, I believe for, I'm not positive about Fortas, but uh, was it Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well? Right, right. Yes. Now, okay. again, what was Scalia? Again, uh, Catholic. Okay, he was the Catholic. <laughs> Italian Catholic, right. Okay. Catholics, <laughs> the Catholics now have a majority on the court. There's only, you know, oh for goodness. many years there was a Catholic seat. Right now, a majority of the, there's only two Protestants on the court. Um, Which ones are they? Uh, goodness, uh, I could say Justice uh, Ginsburg. Gorsuch, I believe, is Episcopalian. And Latanja Brown Jackson is uh, sort of non-denominational Protestant. Okay, wow, I did not realize. See, here I am behind on the the background of the justices. But that, do you think their backgrounds play a large dis- part of this decision, or do you think it is mostly well, constitutional based? That, or they, can we determine they play a part in their nomination? And in mm. fact, I was just I was just working on an essay this last week on, on uh, Justice Jackson, uh, and I had not realized this when uh, Biden w- had fallen behind in the primaries. Uh, his friend from South Carolina uh, came to him and said, "Will you promise to d- to yes. nominate an African American woman?" And he said, yes, I remember that he subsequently won that primary and won the election. And he was true to his promise. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, I believe Jimmy Carter had promised that he would that he would nominate the first woman if he were uh, reelected, elected. Uh, elected. Uh, and he never got an appointment in his four years. Uh, right. So you then, can't just pull somebody and appoint somebody. They have right. to actually and then, have an and opening. Then, and then Reagan ended up with, you know, being able to appoint the first woman who, who was uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. Wow. So so going. OK, so Thomas was the concurring where he said, yes, I agree with the decision, but I have a few different things I'd like to say. And who yeah. was on the dissent? Well, Right. Let, let me let me make a confession here. Yeah. Because I was writing up the other case yesterday uh, in Groff that I think we're going to discuss. The the affirmative action case was 182 pages or maybe even longer. I, I and, haven't been able to get through it all. And so I haven't gotten through all of it. Uh, and I should have it here. But but the, it was a six three division mm-hmm. and the three the three dissenters were Sotomayor, Kagan, uh, and uh, Jackson. So, And are they all three? Tell me about Kagan. I can't remember. Are they all three minorities? Or no. Not? Okay. Kagan no. Is- uh, um, she may be Jewish, if you want to consider that a minority. But I, she's I also a woman. Right. She, she's, I mean, right. There are three women, but the women were not unanimous. I, Amy, Amy Coney Barrett. 
uh, was obviously for the uh, for the majority decision. All three Trump appointees were for the majority decision, and he has been sort of trumpeting the fact that uh, you know one of the fascinating things about this. If you look yesterday, um, almost every Republican who spoke out spoke out and strongly in favor of the decision. Almost every Democrat who spoke out opposed it. The but this may be a gift to the to the to the Democrats. Mm. Uh, if I understand it, seventy percent of the American people are opposed uh, to racial considerations being used in in school so, admissions. Right now, what I don't know, and 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 I just haven't had time to research it. I don't know what this says for. Although you would think the same principles would apply, I don't know what it says for hiring decisions. Oh, I was so going to ask you about that. So I'm glad you've brought us there. Is yeah. what, what in the world do we do? I don't know. I mean, for example, I'm, I'm right now hiring a, a, a university advisor. I sent in a list of four people and I got back a list from uh, our employment office of six people. And I looked at them and it looks like it appears as though, well, yeah, that they're probably African American, and they're good. They are qualified candidates, so I'm, sure. I'm happy to happy to uh, to interview them. Uh, but they are getting a plus, presumably because of race. Uh, and I don't. I mean, I don't know if this is like Brown versus Board of Education, where mm -hmm. if you don't have segregate. If you don't have segregation one place, you can't have it any, or whether these are going to be separate issues. Uh, by the way, there was one exception. Uh, oh, the that, the military schools. Well, there's another exception beyond that. The that other the the court gave one limited case where one could use race, and that is in prisons. That if you were facing, oh, I missed that. No, How did if, I miss if, that? if you were facing a riot in a prison, and you thought that separating people, for example, if you had separate white and black gangs, and you could separate the population in that limited case, uh, the court upheld it. Now, the other fascinating thing about the case yesterday is. Is there is there a workaround to considerations of race? Right. And I don't think that I don't think commentators have have read this case closely enough, even though I say that not having read the whole thing myself. But some of the justices, some of the dissenting justices say, well, this is just on paper. What's going to happen is most schools require essays. And I'm going to say, you know. I am the man I am today because I grew up as a black boy in rural Tennessee and I had to overcome all kinds of obstacles. Right. And they specifically point that out in the dissenting right. opinion. They point is... that out. And what you know what Robert says is be careful not to take the law from a dissenting justice because it might get you in trouble. <laughs> That's and so funny. So I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure there will be attempted workarounds, but I'm not sure that I know exactly what the, what what you know what's going to be acceptable and what's not. And it's, you know, it's 
when the court decided the Dobbs decision, I think it basically said, we are so tired of, of looking at abortion cases, let's send it back to the legislature. Uh, I think they're likely to get more cases, you know, is if you can do six weeks, can you do three weeks, you know, when is, and I think we're probably going to have some more affirmative action cases here too. Well, let me ask you two other questions before we close up this topic. One, you mentioned earlier, I know you are at a public university, Middle Tennessee Mm -hmm. State University is one of the the public universities in Tennessee. And you were saying that you, your school does not use affirmative action. Why is that separate than the the schools that came up with Harvard and North Carolina? Well, now now let let me make a qualification. Mm -hmm. When we had, there are some scholarships where we take 20 people and put them in a single class sort of cohort together. And we do, I mean, we don't ask about race, but if we see someone who looks like they might, they might have a unique experience from race or ethnicity or country of origin, then we do take that into consideration in, you know, well, this would make a more interesting class. Uh, Just as we would, you know, we have an air, we have a great aerospace program here. Nice. We have a lot of students and students in pre-law, uh, a lot of students in, in medicine, but we don't want 20 students in our Bacan- top Buchanan program, all of whom are pre-med mm-hmm. or all of whom are, are pre-law or aerospace. So, and that sort of goes to that consideration that Powell used to make about, you know, d- d- diversity. But in terms of, you know, overall for Honors College, for example, Somebody comes here from uh, as a freshman and they have a 25 ACT or higher, or they have a 3.5, they're in the honors college if they want to be. You know, we don't, we get a very good proportion of African Americans and and other minorities, but it's not something, you know, that's not how they qualify to get in the program. And the same, most of our scholarships at MTSU, you know, if you have X uh, score, and X grades, then you will get this scholarship. If you have a little bit higher grades and scores, you'll get this scholarship. You automatically qualify for that particular scholarship. Now, are you different? Is there the the prior rule for affirmative action, for lack of a better way to say it, is that distinct between public and private schools, or it was across the board of all schools can do this or should you know do the this? the first question notably, you know we have two decisions here. And by the way, if I can give a shout out to Katanji Brown Jackson, she recused herself from the from Harvard the one case because, because she she's was from on, Harvard. Well, and she was I think she's actually on or had been on one of the boards there at Harvard. So she recused herself from that. And I think that's a a great example to set. But, you know, the federal government is so involved in education in terms of Pell Grants, in terms of loans, in terms of financing scientific research, that they have enough leverage on private universities. I think I'm trying to remember, was it maybe Grove City uh, is one of those few colleges. There was a case 20 years or 30 years ago, I guess, maybe even longer, in which they basically said, well, our students don't take any federal aid. 
Uh, we don't allow now. Uh, there's since been discussion as to whether that's permissible or whatever. But by and large, both are. You know, the the national government has enough leverage because of student aid and and other aid to universities that uh, there didn't seem to be a major distinction between public and private in this case. Okay, and and the second part of it is so everyone is aware, the the prior decision did not require quotas. It was just no, no, no. it's it's even it's even clearer than that. Prior decisions had forbidden strict racial quotas. Right. They had permitted consideration of race as a form of diversity, but the court between Bakke and the, the, the Michigan cases and the Texas cases, the court had said no one was required to use race for affirmative action. A state could decide that they were not going to. Again, those states that didn't saw a drop off in the number of African-Americans. Some of them may have seen an increase in the number of Asian-Americans. And again, recognizing that the term Asian-American, you know, that can be Chinese, Vietnamese, Malaysian, you know, a whole host of of different. Okay, and and then the the final question. So that was kind of the the college school question. The final question I would have is in in going back to the workplaces, to the best of my knowledge, and maybe I just am not caught up on this. Is I don't think there's a specific Supreme Court decision with regard to diversity in the workplace. There have been cases involving contracts that go to minority contractors okay um and the like but Um, no established rule across the board one way or the other again i don't i think that's right but i think this decision may be a little like brown in the sense that brown's you know you had previously had a case or two that involved interstate transportation Right. And then you go, you know, finally you get to loving where states uh, interracial marriage laws or, or prohibitions of interracial marriage laws were declared unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. So we may find a ripple effect, not so much in college admission, but uh, but throughout, you know, there are a lot of. Right. And, and right. There are a lot of private businesses and maybe they're just trying to be politically correct, or maybe they mean it, that believe that having a diverse, you know, if you go into a bank and everyone there is white and you're black, are you going to be less trustful, less likely right. to want to put your money there? And, you know, the same might be true of, of a good deal of professions. So I'm not quite sure what the implications there are. Well, I'm guessing that we'll have another case or two up through the Supreme Court and possibly possibly on that workplace question. Okay, well, thank you. So before we get to the next one, we do have the Legal Weekly Wine. Um, So I do want to announce our wine today. And in 
in tribute of of where we're going um, and of William and Mary, um, I've got from Williamsburg the governor's white today. Um, so this is from the Williamsburg winery. Um, you and I were back there a couple months ago. Okay, and white is not there. a racial designation, right? No, it is not. It is the wine. <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> it is the governor's white wine. Okay. I'm glad you've clarified. Not, not wine for white. Okay. <laughs> no, no it, is, it is the white wine. It is not the governor's rosé. It is the white um, because of that. But I think I think it's really nice of where we're getting a lot of, you know, the buildup of the legal system was from Williamsburg. Um, even, you know, from the, the beginning, right, we had uh, even revolutionary impacts uh, beginning with, yes, with Williamsburg. Marshall Wythe Law School, right? Yes, the Marshall Wythe yeah. School of Law. And, and, and we're going to tell the story on me? Oh, you, you absolutely should. About James Wright. So when you go to William and Mary, there's a statue of at the law John, school. Right, at the law school of John Marshall and George Wythe. And the founders. Among, right. And in the description of with, it says that he educated Thomas Jefferson, James, and James Madison, Madison, and others. And I wrote a letter to the law school saying, "While I was, you know, I know James Madison, <laughs> and I don't remember. <laughs> I played James Madison, and I don't remember studying under George With. And as I recall, and so the letter I got back was, uh, "It's not that James Madison. It's." Bishop James Madison, who was president of William and Mary. And now you can continue the story in your law school ethics class, right? Yes. So um, so <laughs> the question was, should he have been called Bishop James Madison <laughs> so that he was distinguished? Because it was it, it, it was a little bit misleading yes in, in how it was presented so a lot of our students are saying oh you know james madison studied under under george with and and we had this there's always the question of who had the first law school we're in a in a constant debate um but yes the dean at the time um dean taylor reevely who i future absolutely president. love future yeah. president um so he went from dean of the law school while i was there to president of william and mary and i believe now he's retired um but he, <laughs> um it was interesting because i was in law school at the time this letter happened so what did happen with the ethics i'm i'm not entirely sure i recall he, he mentioned he, you i right? don't think he mentioned my name but he mentioned the fact that someone had written into him <laughs> complaining right. about it <laughs> that's right he had um citizen lawyer was the class that he was teaching mm -hmm. and that's what it was okay so he he actually mentioned one of my uh, friends was in his class that semester and said i think i think your dad was talked about <laughs> what are you talking about? And he told the story about how the, the statue was mentioned outside and how someone had written in. Um, <laughs> he did not believe that we were from the same citizen lawyer we believed that we were um, and had this hilarious story. And and a couple people knew apparently that it was it was me and my dad um, that had caused this this controversy of our statute outside a statue outside. But when we were last there, the name was still still present, just yes, as it always was. was. So, so how does the Williamsburg white wine taste? That's a great question. I'm going to put this back here for us. Um, and it, I, I know I love the wine, but let me see if I can describe it. 
It's good. It's um. It's very sophisticated description. Look, I'm an attorney. We had our sommelier on at the beginning of the summer. She was our first session for the Legal Weekly Wine. Um, so catch her. She actually had all the wonderful words. She at least said that my palate was good in terms of the the kinds of things I was tasting. So let me see what I can do. It's a drier white. Um, it is very light. It is a light dry. Um, there are not as many fruited flavors, um, as a lot of other white wines have, um, but it's very crisp. Let me see what the bottle says here as to what's in it. They're saying, it if you can read this, thank a teacher. <laughs> right. And so it's an American Riesling. Um, so it is a semi-dry light and fruity Riesling. Um, it's saying the aromas of peach, citrus, and fresh wildflowers. And I can smell those. I can't taste them as well. Um, but enjoy it outdoors and serve with a variety of foods. I would say I think I can, if anything, I'm tasting more of the flowers than of the fruit. But it it is it is dry. It is light and refreshing and would go very well, as it has many times with a picnic. So. That's my plug for the Governor's White. And we have more Williamsburg Winery wines to get through um, this summer and into the fall. But this one, I've I've used this one many times. It is quite delightful. It's a staple in our house every time we can go back to the Williamsburg Winery. But uh, thank you and, and cheers to you and the Supreme Court for this summer. <laughs> and um, your water that will turn into wine. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so let's um, let's do a couple of the other big ones that have come down this last week. We have Groff. Let's. Do you want to do um, yeah. the Groff case next? Sure. That one's been. I mean, that came out what the same day as the affirmative action it one. Did, so it didn't get quite the attention. Um, but for people that are interested, if they go to the First Amendment Encyclopedia, which is online, I will have within. I, I've already submitted the essay. It'll take them a day or two to put some pictures with it. Um, but it's a pretty fascinating case. And what I like about it, and I didn't see this in any of the commentary, but we've been here before in a yes. somewhat different situation. So in the early 19th century, the U.S. Post Office decided that it was going to begin delivering Sunday mail. Right. And there was a great controversy throughout the land. Uh, proponents said this would be good for commerce, particularly in rural areas. Right. You know, we want to we want to get information uh, before uh, at the same time that the people in the big city do. Mm -hmm. And we believe in separation of church and state. Uh, and the opponents said uh, we're a Christian nation. Uh, and I think actually the argument that they should have made and that I, I always found missing and, and was sort of disappointed. With the original it, case. Right. Well, the original controversy in, in, okay. in, in the early 19th century was that was a time where people were far more likely, I would think, to go to church on Sunday than yes. they are today. Correct. And, you know, was it fair to all the people who had Sunday as a day of rest uh, that they might also be called on, uh, for their employers? And what's interesting about this is the side favoring Sunday mail originally prevailed, 
But by 1840, 45, somewhere along in there, the telegraph came along and a lot of, and sort of, and railroads were coming in too, a lot of the impetus uh, for the need for Sunday mail fell away. And so. And we but, haven't really had Sunday mail. I mean, how many no, and in fact, years? A couple of years ago, there was a discussion of eliminating it on Saturdays, which caused a great furor. But in any case, this the Scroff case involved in and this is hold hold tight. It's Groff versus DeJoy. Right. Um Groff was in converted, I guess converted, I believe, to well, no, he was an evangelical Christian. Um and He's been working for the post office, and it wasn't a full-time job. I forget what his specific title, but like a rural carrier. So he sort of filled in extra deliveries for the post office. And the post office decided that it would help, I guess it was Amazon. Yes. Uh, with some, you know, Amazon decided to go to Sunday deliveries, uh, which this man, by the way, has has blocked. Uh, he doesn't accept Sunday deliveries from Amazon uh, because he doesn't want other people like himself to be working, to have to work on Sunday. So he he asked, you know, when he started, they didn't have Sunday delivery. When they started it, he asked to move. He asked to move to another job, which they let him. Uh, then uh, then that that job also required it. And he didn't show up on Sundays. And. I wish I could remember the term, but he received what was called, I think it was called progressive discipline. Uh, that which sounds right. Yeah, which basically means he was he was given some demerits uh, yeah. for not being willing to deliver Sunday mail, and he eventually resigned. And basically, the argument centers on an interpretation of the Title VII of the Civil Rights yes. Act of 1964, which was reaffirmed in 1972. And this, this law basically said that employers should consider, you know, the religious beliefs and practices of its employees um, you know, unless they impose a substantial burden. Right, the undue uh, burden. Right, an un undue burden on the employer uh, and on the business. But there was a subsequent case in which the court, the court had, had sort of stuck with this substantial uh, burden, but in passing, they had said something to the effect that we don't, it was a case, it was complicated by seniority. Mm -hmm. It was a case where trying to honor the religious objection or re religious beliefs of the, of the person working would have conflicted with um, labor negotiations that had provided seniority to some. And in those circumstances, the court, um, the court said, seem to imply that all you need is some kind of de minimis effort uh, right. to meet um, meet the employee's uh, wishes. And so this in this case, the court said, 
yeah, you found out that it dis, you know, that it disaccommodated some other people who would also prefer not to work on Sunday, but not for religious reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, the standard of the law is the substantial burden, and you need to go back to that or back to something closer to that. And basically, what you have here is in you know there there. There are two clauses in the First Amendment related to religion. Congress shall make no law establishing religion or right. prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And those and are both in the First Amendment. They're both in the first, uh, they're at the beginning of the First Amendment. And the, <clears throat> the decisions, the, the decision that the court is clarifying here was concerned that by recognizing a person's, by giving them a special consideration for not working on Sunday would somehow be an establishment of religion. This court has put more emphasis on the free exercise of religion. Right, not prohibiting the free exercise. Nobody would, it would be hard to say somebody would think you were establishing religion by giving somebody, you know, and particularly now, this assumes that if if they're Muslim and their their day their Sabbath is Friday or they're Jewish and their Sabbath is Saturday, that you would give them the same consideration as a Christian that you would give on Sunday. And, and that so, seems to be consistent with what the ruling is. It doesn't seem to yeah. be well just because you're a Christian and you need Sundays. It's a no. Sunday rule. No. It's a religious rule. That's right. And and what's fascinating about it, it well, two things. One is it's a unanimous decision. Now there yes. is a concurring opinion, uh, uh, but it's it's unanimous. And the other is that the plaintiffs, well, the Amicus Curie briefs in the case are filed not just by, you know, they're not not mainline Protestants. Right. There's a Muslim group. Right. There's Seventh-day Adventists. Um, there are other another, religious groups. Right. I mean, they're, they're, in other words, it doesn't just apply to Sunday getting taking taking a day off for worship. It also applies to what you might be wearing. Uh, it might apply to, you know, if you need accommodation to uh, wash your feet. Uh, before you pray twice a day or have a special right, or, room. Right. Exactly. Allow for prayers where you uh, allow them to right. pause during certain times of the day to, to go to pray to, like you're saying, the special rooms, the specific rooms um, to accommodate prayers. Seems but, to me that there's a case and I can't remember if it's one to be decided today or if, if I'm getting it from a lower court, I, I think, I think it was on the orders list on Monday where the court has accepted a case where a person claims he was fired for playing Christian music in his office at the same time that other people were playing, you know, music that I might find offensive. Right. <laughs> um, so it's. And it's I had some, one of my supervisors did that. 
is one of my supervisors was extraordinarily religious and, and fantastically so in a good way, in a very positive way, but she would have Christian music on and she would leave her door open. And um, we all were like, oh, well, that's really nice. And, you know, you would go in and listen to the nice ones. And if you, right. I, I thought it was a way for her to keep people out that she didn't like. <laughs> um, well, that but, probably would be an information. <laughs> I mean, I believe she really she genuinely liked the music, but there were certain people in the in the, in the group who didn't like yeah, it. I need to well. remember this. Like, hmm. you're, you're helping me out here. <laughs> it seemed to be very effective for some people not going in. Maybe it was just, you know, one of those side things that just happened to be versus an actual intent, but it was pretty funny to watch. Um, so <laughs> So with this, now, now here's just some practical questions. And I guess it's because I'm, you know, regularly practicing attorney is <laughs> so, okay. So twofold. One is, did they really need him? Couldn't they just have hired somebody to pick up those Sunday well, jobs? That, that's the question. I mean, the question is the court is saying you can't just say it would be inconvenient. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you can't just say, well, it's going to be a little, you know, some, well, and one thing you absolutely cannot say that both sides agreed. I mean, the, the majority and the concurring opinion mm -hmm. said you cannot deny somebody a claim simply because people in the office say Saturday worship, that's ridiculous. Why don't they go to church like the rest of us on Sunday or, you know, I can't, I can't believe they got to wash their feet before they pray. You know, right. if it's based on any religious, anti-religious animus, then it's out of bounds no matter what. But, you know, what it, it leaves open, I think, you know, it, it means you're going to get a lot more of these cases because you're going to have to decide, you know, what, how far do you have to go in terms of cost, in terms of inconvenience? Right. Uh, and in terms maybe of, you, you know, would if I didn't go to worship myself on Sunday, would I resent, you know, I would rather maybe have two days together, Saturday and Sunday, right. or Sunday and Monday, than I would have to come in on a Tuesday, be, you know, have to ha have to come in for somebody else on a Sunday and then have to take my uh, my vac my day off in the week on a Thursday or some other right. day. And, and I wish I had an employment lawyer on with us. Um, and maybe we can on another day because I don't know the ins. I mean, I know practically because I've been an employee for how long, right? Like you, we've all been employees, but my, my question that I don't know the answer to, I don't think these have to be disclosed at time of hiring. Um, and I think some of the employers are getting upset because they're like, well, we didn't know you would have these limitations, so to speak, on your well, work times, your work days. So should we be allowed to consider that before we well, hire you? And, and I think the answer is no. And, and I remember a distinct situation where your mother was asked mm. when she took her first job whether she could go a year without getting pregnant. Oh. Um, and that was totally, uh, you know, was totally illegal. Oh, now you even at the time, yeah. I mean, this was 40, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was illegal then. It's still illegal. Um, uh, you, you know, and, and may, 
I don't know if that's an exact parallel, but you know, if we do accommodate people for childcare, pregnancy, uh, other things, then it does seem that you might give at least as you know similar consideration to questions of religious. Now, again, you know, could you? Does it mean that a company would have to go bankrupt because? Right. You know, it's pledged that it's going to be open on Sunday and none of its employees would do so. Probably not. I would hope not. Um, but, you know, it, it's saying, you know, it's trying to put religion back in the prominence that it had. We're guaranteed religious extra. And, and now, now do note, of course, this is a government em, employment. Not private. And, 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 and there may be different, you know, and it. There may be different considerations, partly depending on the size of the business. Is it engaged in interstate commerce and, and whatever? Well, but that at also least, goes to the how much of a hardship is it? Right. For the private right. versus the public. Right. Right. Anyway, well, it's, a fasc- it's a fascinating case. You know, yeah. it's hard to say the court doesn't get it right when they do it unanimously. Um, you know, and there's so much talk. You know, I'm, I'm trying to work on an article. That's what do I have the title of it? I don't know if it'll get published, but all I want is a normal court. Mm. Which I go through all I want is a court that will follow precedents when I agree with them. Oh, overturn them when I don't. You know, all I want is a court that has a majority of people from my political party. You know, Mm. all I want is a court that will strike down presidential executive orders that are bad and uphold those that are good. Uh, And one of the things that really troubles me about both sides, and we're so predictable. What do you think of the court today? Well, what did they do for me today? And by me, I mean, you know, did they agree with me and my positions or not? And if they agree with me, the court's great. And if they disagree with me, you know, well, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. We need to sack the court. We need to do this. We need to do that. Uh, I, I, you know, my hope is, and I, you know, they do, they, we, we, we tell them to be nonpartisan, but we run them through this gauntlet, right? Exactly. Uh, we try to get all these pledges from them. Uh, and then we're surprised, uh, that the court, you know, sometimes acts in what seems to be a partisan fashion. Right. Uh. Goodness. Okay. So let's get at least one other case in. We could talk about so many, um, but let's at least talk about the threats case. And let me okay. make sure I'm getting the right name. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's a contrarian. It's a, let's see. Counterman. I love the time. I love the name. Counterman versus uh, Colorado. Okay, good. You've got the, for some reason, my yeah, and it's it's a very. I'm not sure that I think the court got it right. I'll, ju- I'll just be honest with you. Okay. Uh, essentially, that's good to know at the start of it. Right. Um, and, and again, I mean, I I do understand. Truthfully, I think when the case is retried, that the man is still going to be convicted. Um, and tell us so, what he was originally convicted of. Well, he's he's convicted. He's he's actually indicted under a stalking charge, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh, and then the the legal issue here is something known as true threats. 
So one of the exceptions to the First Amendment is you cannot use speech to extort, to bribe, or to put someone in fear of their life. Uh, I mean, basically to assault, I guess would be the legal term, right? Uh, assault and battery. You, you can't use... Okay, you're, I've lost your audio. Harm. I just lost your, I, I heard the last oh. of it, but not the first of it. Yeah, so is assault is generally that, that you're putting someone in reasonable apprehension of immediate harm. Right. And so here he had been convicted. He, he is, and this is a woman, uh, he goes after a woman, a musician who apparently he's never met mm-hmm. and starts dissing her. Uh, which I guess you have as a right, you know, it's, it's not, but it's not just There's that. So I don't many like your it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, I hope you die, that sort of thing. Uh, he indicated that he knew what kind of car she drove and where she lived and maybe was following her around. And the court said, this, follow, you know, this fits that definition of a true threat. Right. Um, and what he said is, well, they didn't prove that I actually intended to threaten. They didn't examine, they just, all they did was look at what I said and they didn't ask me, what did you mean by that? Right. Uh, and there's, a, there's another case, and I wish that I could remember the name, uh, but there's a similar case out there a year or so ago uh, involving something, right, where somebody is writing rap music and he basically, you know, wishes for the death of his former wife or, or whatever. And so it's it's partly yeah. related to that case, you know, to what to what degree. Basically, what the court said is that you have to prove some subjective. Now, it, it was sort of proven that he had said this, mm-hmm. but it wasn't as clear. Well, what did he mean by it? You know, did he mean right. Did he mean it as a, you know, subject? So they added, the court was using a purely objective test and the court said, no, you got to look at least, you have to have mens rea to have a criminal. Criminal intent. Right. Criminal intent. Mm -hmm. And the court hadn't actually proven that. Now, again, my, and so the court, basically the court sent it back and said, if you want to try this guy, here's what you have to prove. I think they're going to be able to prove it. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's it seems to be the normal assault is would a reasonable person understand his statements as threats? Is right. you know would you, would these statements put a reasonable person in? Right. And that's the sort of objective test, and the court Correct. is saying. You got to go a little bit beyond that and you have to determine, well, what was his, you know, did he now again, that's the dissent is Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett are saying that it required some kind of subjective knowledge that he had to specifically intend them to be a threat. Um, But in a regular court, and to me, this, this doesn't seem so significant. Um, and, you know, as a prosecutor, formal criminal defense attorney, too, like I've done both sides. And in, in the end, it, it just seems to kind of be the this, the same as it used to be. It doesn't seem to be any major implication on continuing law where it's 
I have to prove sure. through even circumstantial evidence this he can get up there and say all day long, well, I didn't mean them as a threat. But you have the right as a juror to look at him and say, well, with all of the the language that you used, with the way that you did it, with the the information that you have, we can reasonably interpret that you really did mean it as a threat. Just right. like any defendant, a defendant in a murder trial can get up and say, I didn't do it. But that I, doesn't I require that, you to believe that. I think the difference is it's a little harder maybe to assess threats on the internet than it is face-to-face. And that's the difference in in this case is it was an internet case, excuse me, an internet case versus anything else, which is rather novel for the court. Right, right. Pretty fascinating case. It is. All right. So I know that more cases have been coming down today. um, And I know it's sad to actually put those on hold for next week. Um, But what what ones do we have coming up that will be next week that we will uh, recap? Well, (laughs) I had them written down here somewhere. (laughs) Um, We have a case involving another religious freedom versus LGBT. To what degree does the wedding planner... Uh, have to, you know, serve or should should they be required to serve uh, LGBT plus community? Um, and then the something that will be of interest to many of your viewers, I'm sure, uh, Biden's executive order regarding uh, loan repayment. Does you know does he have the yes. authority to suspend these by executive order? And of course, you know, in the meantime, we do need to remember. Uh, we will be celebrating on July 4th, the 247th. Is that right? I think um, that's right. You're you're aniver- better with the numbers. Anniversary of the United States. Uh, I don't know if you can see my tie, uh, but I oh, have I a nice little, nice little tie there uh, to celebrate the occasion. Gave a speech on the subject yesterday. You know, times have changed. In mm-hmm. early America, every 4th, Every 4th of July, now there were parades and whatever, but the price was always a one to two hour or longer speech on the founding fathers on the 4th of July. Today, we pretty much dispense with speech making. Yeah. (laughs) And focus on the fireworks and the picnics. Eat some burgers. Yes. Hot dogs. Yeah. Okay. So what I'd like, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, what we are going to do is um, because we have Dr. Vile this summer and we have, um, he's generously given us his time. We would like to do, especially since he knows so much more about the founding fathers and our original constitution and declaration is we're going to do a special weekly wine um, for the fourth. So join us for that. We'll get it out either on the fourth or on the fifth, um, but through the fourth. And we would love to have you join us for a talk about the founding, about the declaration, and whatever else Dr. Vile is happy to to let us know. It will be, it will not be a full speech. We will have conversation, a little <laughs> bit of back and forth. So you don't yeah, you just lost your me. audience. Everybody suddenly signs off. <laughs> <laughs> Well, join us for happy hour. Um, join us for a celebration of the fourth and of our country, um, of our founding and how far or how little you believe that we've come since then. Um, but happy hour okay, today. Just a, teaser. Yes. Ooh. just a teaser. Just a teaser. Oh, tell us. 
John Adams was convinced that we would be celebrating Independence Day on July 2nd. And if your readers don't know why, or your listeners don't know why, they need to know. And if they don't know which three presidents died on the 4th and which president was born on the 4th, they'll also get to learn that. Oh, I love it. Those are great teasers. Yes. Don't give it away now. We have to have them them watch on the fourth. Okay. Um, so, yes, I love those teasers. And thank you. Hope you've had a wonderful, happy hour here on the last Friday of June. Um, stay tuned with us for next Friday, where we review the court's decisions from today. And next week for our special edition for the 4th of July, I'm Virginia Tarani, and this is Dr. John Vile. And uh, thank you for joining us here on the Legal Weekly Wine.